Um, if you're new with us today, um, we, we started a new series last week uh, called Status Updates. And it's a series based on the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. Um, and last week, we, 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 we kind of did an introduction, so you're not really missing out all that much. Um, it's available on, online if you want uh, to follow it. Follow it. But um, in, in the first chapter, we're not going to re- look at it tonight, uh, but in the first chapter, uh, we are presented with a God who is there, who actually exists, and he is not silent. He speaks. And this is what God does. The fact that he is there is amazing. The fact that he speaks is even more incredible, that he would communicate something to his created world. And he's not silent. And he speaks, as we saw at the beginning of Revelation, through uh, his son, uh, who, who made known this revelation, this knowledge, through uh, to the apostle John, who wrote this letter, um, who described this revelation that he saw of the risen, this glorified, beautiful picture of fearsome picture of, of Jesus in his glorious uh, transcendent body. And so uh, it says he was worshipping or he's in the spirit on the Lord's day. This is John and this voice spoke to him, instructing him to write down what he's about to see and, and, and put it on a scroll and then send it to these seven churches. And so the seven churches form sort of the beginning part of the book of Revelation. The seven real historic churches that actually existed and Jesus has a message for each of those seven churches. And the, the reason why we're, we're looking at this together is a, a new church here in the 21st century. We're, we're very far removed from the first century AD when all this was written. But the point that we'll see time and time again over the next few weeks is that there's something in each of the seven churches in all of us. There's something in each of those seven churches in us, whether it's us as an individual or whether it's us as a a church body together, whether it's either potentially there or actually there, there is something of the seven in us. And so uh, we need to pay attention to the messages uh, that are given to the churches to understand them well so that we may grow and learn and become healthy and be corrected by God's word. There, There are promises there that if we follow and obey the teaching of Jesus, then those promises may apply legitimately to us. Likewise, if we refuse or deny what God is saying through his word, the God who speaks, the God who is there, then the threats, the judgments that are given to these churches may also legitimately apply to us. And so as Sharon has has just read for us, um, we are at the first of those seven churches, a church called Ephesus. Um, It's it's no longer really a... Well, um, you can go to Ephesus just now. The ancient city, there's there's not much, a lot left of it, but um, you can still go and visit. It used to be actually a port, you know, right on the sea. But over over the years, um, because of the silting up, um, it's actually several miles inland. But at the time of writing, it was very much on, on the sea and it was a major sort of port city. In fact, it was the fourth major city in the whole Roman Empire, behind Rome, the mother Rome, Alexandria... Um, which is currently in North Africa, um, Syrian Antioch, and then Ephesus. So it was a big player in the known world at the time of the writing of the Bible. And uh, the Apostle Paul uh, was very influential in the church at Ephesus. He um, spent several years there uh, lecturing, it says, in in the hall of Tyrannus, um, debating with people, teaching them the Christian faith. 
eventually got ran out of town. This mob uh, chased him out. And then there was a letter that Paul wrote subsequent to that uh, called the book, well, the letter to the Ephesians. We have that in the New Testament as well. But it's to John who, who wrote, uh, who you know, gave the revelation, wrote down what he saw. He has a very special relationship, it seems, with these seven churches. He knows them very well. And so it says down in verse 1 of our passage today, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And if you are with us last week, you'll remember some of this imagery that's already come up. Uh, the, the seven stars in the hand of, of, of Jesus, the glorified, risen Lord Jesus, who's walking among the seven lampstands. We're told that those seven stars are angels or uh, angelic messengers to the churches. They are in the palm of the hand of Jesus. He is an authority. He owns them. He determines what they say and do. And Jesus, there he is. This fearsome, beautiful, transcendent yet imminent, far away yet near, this Jesus is walking among the seven lampstands, which are the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Which, by the way, might be a good thing, or it might be a bad thing. I don't know if you're familiar with... um, Summer Madness that is happening this weekend, and they had a famous speaker there called Matt Chandler, who's a guy from Texas in America, a great, great guy, great pastor. I thought to myself this morning, Flip, I wonder what would happen if Matt Chandler came to my church uh, this evening, and, 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 you know, hearing me do all this stuff with the guitar and playing a few bum notes and then listening to a pretty average sermon. I mean, wow, imagine if Matt Chandler was here. It'd be awful. And great, but awful. But yet what we see here, and I just remembered this straight away, actually, and God chastened me in some ways. And he said, don't worry about Matt Chandler, whether he's here or not. Worry more about Jesus. Because Matt Chandler may or may not want to come to this church and whatever. But Jesus is here by his spirit, the spirit of Jesus. We see in the scripture that he is with his church. He makes the church what it is. And so Jesus is among us just now by his spirits. So whether Matt Chandler's here or not, we have a far higher, greater, most wonderful, beautiful, terrifying phenomenon of Jesus walking among the churches. Anyway, let's concentrate on what he says, first of all, to the church in Ephesus to get an understanding, then we can work out how how this may or may not apply to us. Look down at verse 2. It says, Jesus, this is the message now proper. I know your works, he says, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. It seems to be that the church of Ephesus is a gritty church. They're determined, despite opposition. It says they react against evil, it says the second half of verse 2. They can, they can detect these so-called false apostles, these, these teachers who are going around saying and proclaiming they have the authority of, of Paul and the other 12 apostles of Jesus, and yet they don't, they're false. And this church, because it knows its doctrine, it knows the Bible, it knows the Word of God, it can detect false teaching. And they're against that, they react against it, and that's, that's good, says Jesus. They, they, they would be what we would consider, and using our own language, sound. They're, those guys are sound. They've got their doctrine sussed. And they are rightly, rightly, 
They are commended, of course, rightly, by Jesus. Of course, doctrine is so critically important for us as a church. We saw this uh, right back at the beginning when we started at Foundation Church. The importance, one of the nine marks of a healthy church, is Bible theology. It's good theology. Because if you don't have good doctrine, a good understanding of what the Bible teaches and how it hangs together, the door is wide open to false teaching, which can be devious and damaging and, and tear churches apart and lead believers away astray. And that's not happening here at Ephesus. They, they have got their doctrine sussed. Not only that, it says in verse 3, it seems to be that they are suffering as a result of the truth. I know you are enduring patiently, he says, and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. See, they're, they're not just scholars and people who read all this stuff in books, but they're actually doing something with the truth. They are obviously, it's, it's impacting something, it's, it's driving them. They are, they are proclaiming something of the truth of the Bible. And it's getting them in trouble. For my name's sake, you're bearing up, says Jesus. They're taking flack from the opposition. We don't know exactly what it is, but there they are. And the commendations continue down in verse 6. He says, you have this. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We don't know, don't know much about these people, the Nicolaitans. They, they come up again in the, towards the end of chapter 2. But clearly they are a group of false teachers who are somehow leading the church astray. And Jesus says, you hate what they're doing. And I hate it too. Good. We're on the same team, on the same page. But then we get to verse 4 as we read through this message. But. And when the word but comes up, we know things are about to turn around. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. They've abandoned the love they had at first. All this stuff they've been doing, all these works and toil and patient endurance and, 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 and getting opposition for the sake of Jesus, that just sounds so good. And yet I have this against you, you've abandoned your first love. It's, it's this imagery of, of marriage. The love is gone. Yeah, maybe remaining together, externally going through the motions, just grinding it out. But love has left the building. You just feel the irony in what, what Jesus is saying here. These works, these this activity, these acts of service, that's all happening, all going, great. But there's no love in it. There's no passion, there's no heart. They're just grinding it out. We don't know what their motivation is to be doing this stuff, these works and this activity and standing up for the street. What is their motivation? We don't know what their motivation is, but we do know it's not love. It's not the gospel. It's not Jesus. Something else. Maybe it's just that comfort that we get from doing religious things. It sort of confirms something and makes us feel peaceful. Maybe it's just the routine they'd got into and this, once the train has started, it's hard to get it stopped. Maybe as a church, they just felt guilty if they weren't continuing the works they did at the start. So they just carried on. Maybe they were trying to earn religious brownie points from, from God by doing good things and hoping he would bless them in return. Who knows? It doesn't say. 
They have the truth. But they have no love. They thought they were being faithful, but the irony is they were being faithless. They thought the marriage was great, but the irony is it was terrible. They had lost devotion in their devotion. They had orthodox beliefs, and yet they had her heresy in their application. They had confused the truth, small t, with the truth, capital T. They confused the doctrines and the teachings and all that stuff with the one to whom it points to, Jesus, who is the truth. Can you just imagine for a second being in the position of those who heard this read for the first time with all this stuff going on, serving, doing, activity, standing up, being true, faithful. And yet Jesus says to them, you have abandoned your love. Not only that, it gets worse because it seems to be according to the risen, resurrected, all-seeing, perfect Lord Jesus, their church was about to die. He says later on, I will come and remove your lampstand, which we know from earlier on is the church itself. What a shock to the original hearers of this message. What is the point of all this stuff? How does it apply to us? Look down at verse 7. And we see this at the end of most, well, all of the letters. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus, through the Spirit, is saying, anyone who hears this message, anyone who is in tune with the Holy Spirit's message, listen up. What the Spirit says to the churches. Yes, originally it probably referred to the seven churches who are reading this entire thing together, passing it around or copying it or something like that. But to all subsequent Christians and believers and churches who come after them, because this is inspired stuff. So this applies to us as much as it did to them if the context is slightly different. Whether this represents, as I said at the beginning, the whole of us, the gathered body of us, like an institution, whether this represents individuals within that institution, whether it is actually a threat, actually something that's happening in our midst, or whether it potentially just could happen, we have to heed the message, we have to listen this evening to what the Spirit says to the church. Uh, I read a story in the beginning of this book that helps us, I think, to understand what a church could be like that has the spirit of Ephesus among it. It's from a book called What's So Amazing About Grace, did the rounds a few years ago. Describes what the modern church can be like in the eyes of some people. It says here, I'll try and interpret it as I go along because uh, it's pretty hardcore in places. It says here, a woman came to me in wretched straits. 
homeless, sick, unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. Through sobs and tears, she told me that she'd been renting out her daughter, two years old, to men. She made more renting out her daughter for an hour than she could earn on her own in a whole night. But she had to do it, she said, to support her own drug habit. The author says, I could hardly bear hearing the story. I had no idea what to say to this woman. This is a pastor who's saying this. At last, I asked her if she ever thought about going to a church for help. I never forget the look of pure, naive shock that crossed her face. Church, she cried. Why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They would just make me feel worse. The author goes on to say that what struck him in this story with this exchange with this woman was that in the days of Jesus, such people were attracted to him, the broken and the sick and the poor and the rich and the proud were attracted to Jesus. And yet he says somewhere along the line, we have lost our first love as a church. Because these broken, wounded, needy people, rather than seeing the church as a place to come and receive love and healing and help, they fear judgment and condemnation. I'm not saying that applies to everybody at all times. There are some very faithful churches in our own city who love practically as well as faithful in the word. But if that woman's attitude describes anything of what people think of us in the modern church, then perhaps the spirit of Ephesus is more prevalent in Northern Ireland and Belfast than we might like to think. Spirit of judgmentalism, of hostility. It's just horrible, horrible thought. How dishonouring it is to, to our Lord who humbled himself. We were seeing this in our last series. Who, who made himself nothing. Who took on the nature of a servant. Who gave up everything for his people. And yet oftentimes we raise ourselves up because we've got the truth. Even us as a church here, Foundation Church, as we, as we press out and we're, we're praying every Wednesday as we get together in city prayer or house prayer, we want to pray and press out and we want to serve more and more our community and we're doing that, we're starting and it's, it's fruit and we want, we want to partner with Christians Against Poverty first through befriending and helping uh, provide debt counselling and, and relief for those in financial difficulties but later we want to start ministries and uh, life skills and things like that here at the center and as we serve and as we connect more and more to those out there we're going to come across more and more people who are different from us in fact i read that south belfast is the most diverse area not only in the city of belfast but most likely in the entire country of northern ireland and it's this area that we are doing church in and so we know if we are being effective in our ministry that we will have people, Lord willing, as time goes on, in here worshipping with us who are different from us. And the question we need to think about as we read through this stuff here about Ephesus and think about the spirit of Ephesus 
losing our first love, how will these people feel when they come and be with us? When the the, the lost and the needy and the broken from different ethnic and social groups, what will their experience be when they come and and worship with us and join us and, and, and meet us? Will they respond like the woman in this book? Church, why would I bother with that? That will just make me feel worse. You know, we want to be clear on our distinctives as a church. We said right at the beginning, we are Christian in faith, a foundation church. We are reformed in our theology. We are Baptistic in our polity. And these are all good things. And, and, and the church in Ephesus was commended for its commitment to the truth. And, 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 and we want to, as a church own and enjoy and, and flesh out those rich truths of the gospel. We, we want a, a way of church government and system that, that displays and protects the gospel and, and represents Jesus to the world. Clearly, yes and amen. But if we, as a church, at foundation, if, in Foundation Church, if we lose our focus, if we turn away even just a few degrees, if our love starts to get shriveled up and then starts to go cold then we are at risk, if only at risk, of adopting the spirit of Ephesus. There's no point having great ministries out there and doing cap. There's no point in having great theology and being really clear on the truth as, as we see in God's word. If there is no love among us, then we could just be surprisingly in the same place as the church at Ephesus thinking they're doing so well, and yet love has left the building. One commentator on this particular passage said this, and I think this is great. He said, every virtue carries its seeds of destruction. Every virtue carries the seeds of destruction. What he's saying is, It's good to be committed to the truth. It's good to be committed to actions. And yet, sometimes within that, the seeds of destruction can also start to flourish. So we need to be on guard as a church. We need to be on guard against losing our love. Otherwise, we'll end up just grinding it out, just like the Ephesians. Doing activity for the sake of activity, thinking we're benefiting ourselves somehow, and yet according to Jesus, be at a risk of losing the church or worse. So why am I telling you all this stuff here rather than just make you feel bad or worried or whatever? What are we supposed to do if we as individuals notice the spirit of Ephesus in ourselves or if we see the shadows or the seeds of it or even how do we prevent it from happening in the future? Well, the good news about every single message that Jesus gives to the seven churches, as terrible and and, and threatening as they may be in some situations, every single church is offered grace. There is a promise. There is is a way out for those who have an ear. Look down with me at verse 5. Jesus says this to the church at Ephesus, Remember therefore... From where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I'll come and remove 
Your lamp stand from its place unless you repent. Remember, he says, repent and return. Four hours. The word return is not there, by the way, so hang hang back. Um, But I'll explain what that means in a second. Remember, repent and return. That is the way that Jesus teaches the church of Ephesus should respond to this damning message. Number one, repent. Sorry, remember. Verse five, from where you have fallen. He says, remember what it was like back in the day. Remember what it was like when you first heard the good news of Jesus. When you first received the gospel. Remember the thrill when you first heard that your sin, sins have been forgiven. When the objective moral guilt that you have before God has been washed away. That heavy, thick darkness that that hangs upon every person when you receive the gospel is is removed through Jesus' death and his resurrection. Remember, if you're a Christian here this evening, just think back to that time when you first realised what the gospel meant. Jacob was sharing a bit of that earlier on in his testimony slot. When he, he realized, the gospel kind of clicked on and flicked on a light in his soul. Think back just now to that joy of knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are in a right relationship with God, that you are a son and daughter of the Most High God, and no one or no thing, nothing can take that away from you. Remember, remember how you felt. Remember how you felt when you realized for the first time that because of Jesus and when you trust him, you have a hope of a glorious future that is guaranteed and secured for you on the basis of God's word to us. Do you remember that? To being a Christian, just for, just for the record, is not about living in the past. But what Jesus is saying here, and I think this applies to us too, when you are down a hole when you have fallen from your first love, when your love for God is cooling off, number one, he says, remember. Remember what it was like at the start. Remember from where you have fallen. And then he says, repent. In fact, in the verse, it's mentioned twice. Repent. A decisive break. That means change your mind, change your life so clearly as if you're making a break. And don't forget, this is a letter written to Christians, those who already believe in Jesus and have already at some stage or other repented for the first time. Jesus is saying again to them, repent again, because you've fallen from your first love. Repent. Turn away, that is. Make a decisive break. Remember, repent, and thirdly, finally, return. Come back. He says, you have abandoned your first love. You've you've walked away. Don't forget that first love is not just a a feeling or a, a shiver in your liver. Your first love, if you are a Christian, is a person called Jesus. And you, says Jesus to the church, you have walked away from me. Return, he says, come back. 
You have been faithless, but I am faithful. My arms are open to you, he says. If you think about it, remembering is something you do in, in your mind, it's with your intellect. Repenting, likewise, is something, at least it starts in your mind. It's something you, you decide. And as such, those first two things are, are sort of invisible. But returning, coming back, has, has evidence. It has practical, tangible results. It is observable. You know, it's possible to have actions without love. But it is impossible to have love without actions. And so Jesus is saying here, return to your first love and do the works that you did at the start. You won't be able to stop doing those works because you've returned to me. You've come back to your first love. You've been restored. Resume those gospel-motivated, Christ-honoring, God-loving works characterized by the life you had at the beginning. Resume that thrill that you had of living for Jesus, of joy that you had in doing all things to honor him. Do that, says Jesus. Come back. As you're listening to this, this sermon and reading these words together from the Bible, I wonder if you, as you sit here this evening, are being convicted in any shape of this Ephesian spirit. Particularly, although not limited to, but particularly if you are a believer in Jesus, you have embraced Christ by faith at some point in the, in the past, and yet if you're honest with yourself as, as you sit and think about this stuff, you would say, or maybe others would say of you, your heart is just not as warm for Jesus and for the gospel as it was. Maybe as you have gone on in your Christian life, you understand more stuff, you've done more learning, you've read more books, you're, you're more clued up on your doctrine, and you can argue and spot a false teacher from a mile away. But maybe you've got all those things, and yet there is the feeling that your heart is somehow disengaged just detached in some way compared to the fire that you maybe felt at the start. Now you're just a bit more reserved, a bit cooler, a little less risky. Yeah, you do the outside activities, give a bit of money to the church, do a few things, but if you're honest with yourself, and only you will know this, the thrill is gone. It's as if love has drained out of your veins. I'm not saying, by the way, just for the record, that the Christian life is one adrenaline rush after another. It's not. That is, that is a false presentation of the Christian life that you can hear from time to time. That's not the case. But in general, as you examine your life and the situation you're in just now and you're a believer in Christ... Would you say you are colder now than you were at the start? Maybe you've noticed that you are more critical and harsh as time's gone on. Maybe you're tolerating people's dysfunction 
less and less as the days go on. Maybe you just get annoyed with people who don't believe the things you believe. Maybe you need to, like the church here in Ephesus, remember from where you've fallen, repent and return. Just as we come to drawing these things together and close, it is clear that the spirit of Ephesus, if we can call it that, ultimately comes down to this one thing. We forget the gospel. Yes, we may have the truth, small t, but we have forgotten the truth, capital T, himself. We've abandoned the truth, capital T. But to this church here in Ephesus, to us today, to anyone who is listening, who who has identified something of this Ephesian spirit in their hearts, Not only does Jesus give an opportunity to return in verse 5, but he attaches a promise to everyone who will listen and respond. He says in verse uh, 7, the second half, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This promise is attached to those who would listen and respond. And this is where we see the grace of Jesus being given to the church and to us too. What is this promise he gives them? It sounds a bit obscure. To eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. If you're familiar at all with with the Bible, you'll know that that refers right back to the beginning of the book of Genesis. Where the first parents, Adam and Eve, were in the garden perfect harmony with one another, perfect harmony with with the rest of creation, perfect harmony, most importantly, with God, their, their creator. Beautiful, wonderful, perfect. And yet they disobeyed. They went against God's word. They listened to temptation. They allowed themselves to, to, to uh, gave themselves to sin. They went away against God's word. And as a result, they lost their first love. And so God put them out of the garden. He excommunicated them from his presence. They had to leave. Get away from me. And it says there at the end of Genesis chapter 3, after this had been done, they'd been banished from the presence of God. The entrance, it says, to the tree of life, that same tree that we're talking about here, that that entrance to the tree of life was guarded by these fearsome heavenly creatures called cherubim. And a flaming sword went to and fro to prevent anyone from access to the tree of life. The way was closed. No access to God. Come near to God and die, was the message the cherubim gave. But here, at the end of this promise to the church in Ephesus who have lost their first love, they are given the promise, access to the tree. Come into the paradise of God. How is that made possible? How is it that the church and anyone with the Ephesian spirit can access the presence, eat of the tree? It's because of the gospel. It's because Jesus himself walked through that gate 
and it led to his death. The flaming sword of the cherubim fell on him. By his work on the cross, Jesus won us access to return back to our first love, to return to God, to be in his perfect, wonderful, eternal, blessed presence, the paradise of God. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Remember, repent, and return. Amen. Let's pray together as we close our time of worship.